Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I'm extremely pleased, of course, to have the illustrious Noam Chomsky, uh, who I'm sure, for my listeners, needs no introduction. Uh, a fellow anarchist, a great thinker, uh, an ethicist, a study, of lang- a study of language and so on. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Chomsky, for taking the time today. Glad to be with you. So... One of the things that I've always admired in your analysis, particularly of foreign policy, is your statement that for a moral principle in particular to have any validity, it must be universal. And there's a weird kind of thing that happens where we have this private morality that we teach our kids and and, uh, we expect from each other no initiation of force and negotiation rather than aggression and telling the truth. And then we go into the public sphere and everything is completely reversed. Uh, and now lying becomes diplomacy and aggression becomes defense. What do you think the primary mechanisms are by which we can have these moral reversals and the general population doesn't even seem to notice it, let alone question it? Well, I'm not sure that the population doesn't notice it. But uh, remember, when you turn to public policy, you're not referring to the decisions and choices of the general public but rather to those who dominate one or another system of power that uh, vary over the world. But everywhere you look, there's some kind of system of power and hierarchy and domination. And that's where decision-making goes. Uh, along with the decision there's no reason to expect that those with power may voice the uh, kind of ethical principles that uh, people like to uh, believe that they follow. Uh, But there's no reason to believe that that guides their choices or decisions. So, for example, if you read even the worst monsters, Stalin, Hitler, uh, uh, Japanese fascists, and so on, uh, but uh, their pronouncements were most uh, elevated and loving democracy and freedom. Stalin's constitution was a model of uh, um, humanity, uh, but of course that had nothing to do with their policies. And we should have the honesty to recognize that the same is true of us. Different structures, different mechanisms, not everything's identical, but uh, that basic property remains. It still remains true that the people making the decisions represent First of all, the system of power that's in the state itself, but also their own primary constituencies. In the United States, it's not a great secret what they are. Uh, the wealthy in the corporate sector are the primary constituency, in fact, easily demonstrated and has been demonstrated that uh, even in mainstream political science, that uh, those are the voices of the, the part of the public whose voices are heard are essentially those. Uh, most of the public's basically disenfranchised. So the split between private morality and public policy is not surprising for that reason alone. And then we have to add to it the techniques that are used by the powerful to uh, try to impose a conformity and obedience on the public, often simply by frightening them. So, for example, almost well, it takes a... Uh, Obama's uh, terror campaign, global terror campaign, the drone campaign. Now that's sold to the public on the basis of uh, of, uh, inducing fear. We're doing it to protect you. You know, it's unpleasant, but we got to protect you. That's just the merest, apart from the fact that this is a monstrous crime in itself, 
nevertheless, the uh, it, it's even understood by the of the directors and perpetrators that they're generating terrorists uh, uh, faster than they're uh, killing uh, presumed jihadis. Uh, and in fact, they're even developing a technology of terror, uh, which is just tailor-made for jihadis. Won't be long before they'll be using small drones to attack uh, to attack us. In fact, you can even read articles about this in the uh, professional journals. It's just not a concern. Uh, security of the population is simply not a high concern for state power now or for that matter ever. Uh, they have other concerns. So it's, uh, but, but nevertheless, inducing fear in the population is a common and often very successful way of gaining at least thin public support for policies that people as individuals would uh, not, not tolerate. Right, right. One of the things I think that certainly gives me some hope is the reduction of the power of gatekeepers for cultural conversations. You know, you used to have to go through mainstream media to be able to get out. And I think you had mentioned in one of your interviews how Crossfire had little interest in you because you didn't have the kind of concision where they could fit you in between commercial breaks. And the fact that you can have extended and interesting conversations that can be broadcast worldwide with very little equipment, with very little money, to me gives a, a great deal of hope that not having to go through the gatekeepers can really help us to elevate uh, the discussion. Does it, does it give you similar hope, or is there something tragic that, that I'm sort of missing in, in looking at it this way? Well, I think it's a, it's a part, what you describe as a very positive development. But as always, the world is complicated. So part of the, uh, one of the consequences of the proliferation of uh, the media outlets is that it's apparently having a tendency to uh, try to drive to compartmentalize people uh, in the sense that people are very likely to focus their attention on the kind of media outlets that reinforce their own beliefs and, uh, and biases and prejudices. Uh, so which, uh, I'm subject to it too. You know, the blogs that I look at, I think, are the ones that are the ones that I think uh, I'm going to sympathize with uh, what the writers are probably saying. We all do that, uh, which is okay to a point, but it's uh, it also tends to uh, uh, narrow our own perspectives. We're often not seeing other points of view, which we should expose ourselves to. I think we all ought to try to compensate for that. I try my own ways. And, Sure you do in yours, but uh, uh, there is a, 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 one of the effects of the diversification of media sources is a tendency towards uh, becoming more parochial and narrow in one's perspective on the world, the, the constant reinforcement of one's own views and less challenge to them. Right, right. Now, you've written quite a bit about uh, the, the kibbutzes uh, and uh, some of the ways in which you've admired them. I know you've, you've lived on, on one as well for a time. And you've talked about some of the negatives, some of the racism towards uh, Arabs and the fact that they sort of be a, a, a feeding conveyor belt to the Israeli military. But one thing I found quite fascinating was the degree to which social norms in these uh, uh, organizations are reinforced through social ostracism, through conformity. And that all sounds sort of bad and negative, but 
compared to government laws, which are almost universally disastrous, it seems to me a very interesting way, and I think this is one of the ways in which anarchism is supposed to be able to help reinforce social norms. Uh, how far do you think social ostracism can go, or voluntarism in one's relationships can go in enforcing social norms? Well, it's a double-edged sword. As you say, it's better than, uh, it's better than guns and clubs. Uh, on the other hand, it can be a uh, extremely uh, psychologically and personally harmful, uh, both to the actors and to the victims. So it's the kind of thing that I think uh, one should consciously try to avoid as much as possible. I mean, social norms have to be basically accepted, at least to some degree. We all have to agree to drive on one side of the road and so on, not anywhere we like. Uh, and there's many others, but it can quickly be overdone. It has to be tempered by a high degree of uh, tolerance, of uh, sympathy, of willingness to uh, question one's own uh, beliefs and the norms that one accepts, to listen to alternatives, um, to treat people with uh, dignity and respect, even if we don't agree with them. So I think there's uh, always going to be, a, in a decent uh, social organization, There'll always be tensions between these uh, conflicting goals and resolving them in a civilized and humane fashion is a, a real problem that people have to face. And it, it, you can see it in all sorts of ways around the world. So uh, just to give one example, by accident, I happened to visit Norway on two recent occasions. One happened to be at the same time that they apprehended uh, Breivik, the uh, perpetrator of that uh, hideous uh, massacre. And um, the second time happened to be at the time when he had just been sentenced. And I was quite struck by the attitude, as far as I could tell, of the public uh, towards these events. Uh, the, when he was apprehended, the attitude, as far as I could tell, in the media and talking to people and so on, was uh, not uh, let's tear him to shreds and uh, throw him to the dogs, but uh, he's a human being. He committed a hideous crime. He has to be given his day in court. In fact, he was given time to rant and rave in court. Uh, and uh, then when I returned at the time of the sentencing, in the United States, he would have been uh, probably hanged and, you know, put in an electric chair in five minutes. He was given, a, I think, a 20-year sentence under uh, conditions uh, that are so decent by our standards that they're almost indescribable. Not in a maximum security prison with uh, 23 hours a day of isolation, torture, and so on, but uh, so relatively civilized conditions and a chance for rehabilitation, which nobody expects, but at least it's an option. The, it's, the, these are two pretty similar societies in many ways, but the uh, attitude of uh, just respecting the rights of a human being, no matter how horrible his crimes, to a dignified, humane treatment, and even potential rehabilitation, these differences were startling. And it's, it doesn't go back very far back in history. If you look at the history of Norwegian criminology, it's pretty recent. Societies can change. Yeah, it is uh, one of the things that's 
struck me recently is Portugal has had a decade-long experiment in the decriminalization of drugs and have seen a 50% reduction uh, in addiction and in drug use because they treat these people as people who need help, who have some medical issues, who have dependency issues compared to this unbelievable gulag fest of the U.S. industrial prison complex. It is positively medieval. And this is, again, as you've pointed out many times, how the U.S. is so unbelievably out of step with the rest of the Western world in approaching these issues. That's true. And it's also, uh, as you know, it's it's even worse. I mean, the U.S. is uh, the drug programs in the United States are basically a race war. And that's been true ever since Reagan. Uh, that's true from uh, the mode of police action that's required to the sentencing procedures, to the form of criminalization, and even to the uh, treatment of people released from prison. It's, as you said, medieval, it's brutal, uh, 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 extremely harmful, and very race-oriented. You can see it in the incarceration rates, kind of reminiscent of what happened in the late 19th century after the Civil War. There was about 10 years in which uh, uh, freed slaves had kind of formal freedom. But uh, right after that, after Reconstruction, uh, uh, there was a compact between the North and the South, which essentially allowed the South to do whatever they liked. And they essentially criminalized black life. Uh, so huge numbers of blacks, originally males, mostly uh, were sent off to prison. Uh, in fact, they became a kind of a slave labor force, in many ways even worse than slaver, because uh, for an employer's point of view, you're getting, uh, you know, you have to maintain your labor force. The state does it for you. And this went virtually to the Second World War. And then there were a couple of decades of relative freedom again, and now we're turning towards, uh, again, criminalizing black lives through the uh, drug war. Uh, it has almost no effect on drug use or on the price of drugs, but it is uh, devastating to the, uh, uh, to, the, to the parts of the society that are attacked by this, and also it's devastating to Latin America. It's been extremely harmful to Latin America. They're the real victims, and you can see the what you mentioned about the isolation of the United States is becoming quite dramatic in the Western Hemisphere. So the last hemispheric conference a couple of years ago in Colombia, the United States and Canada were completely isolated from the rest of the hemisphere on the two major issues. One was uh, uh, permitting Cuba back into the hemispheric organizations. All of, all of Latin America is in favor, U.S. and Canada refused. And the second was uh, moves towards decriminalization of drugs, uh, which are going pretty far in some places. In Uruguay, as far as legalization, other places decriminalization, some following the Portuguese model. But in general, towards uh, more humane uh, uh, treatment and treatment that is in fact effective, rather than treatment that is destructive, harmful, brutal, and in our case, racist as well. It's a real major crimes. Just ask you one more question. Uh, I um, have a fairly extensive audience that is uh, generally on the libertarian, not the sort of European libertarian, but the American libertarian audience. And I'm sort of like the 
the Pied Piper trying to get them to become anarcho-curious, I guess is the, uh, is the best way of putting it. And one of the questions that's often asked is, you know, show us an example of successful uh, anarchic experiments uh, in the world. And, you know, everybody reads 1984, an animal farm, how many people read an homage to Catalonia. I wonder if you could just touch on, for our libertarian friends, the experiments that were really, really compelling and fascinating uh, that occurred uh, uh, in the 30s, uh, in, in Spain in particular, uh, which could give people something to explore or something to look at as an example of how effective these kinds of uh, organizations can be. Well, actually, the, uh, the year, there was one year of revolution in Spain, the mostly anarchist revolution in 1936, which was actually quite successful until it was crushed by force. And it's striking that it was crushed by the combined forces of every power system in the world, uh, the communists, the fascists, and the liberal democracies. And then they fought each other to pick up the spoils. But one thing they weren't going to tolerate was a, uh, a free uh, society of people running their own affairs. Uh, but there's plenty more. I mean, takes, uh, you know, I wouldn't call them pure anarchists by any means, but... Uh, systems that have many of those characteristics. So take, for example, the uh, Mondragon conglomerate in Spain, Basque country in Spain, big conglomerate, worker-owned, uh, partially worker-managed, not totally. Uh, it includes um, uh, industrial production, including high-tech industrial production, uh, banks, hospitals, living uh, uh, you know, housing and so on, and it's uh, quite successful. Or take uh, what's happening in uh, uh, parts of the old Rust Belt in the United States, where there's a spread of uh, worker-owned enterprises, um, not huge, but uh, developing, very successful. There's interesting work on this by Garl Paravitz in particular. Uh, these all have a kind of an anarchist flavor to them. It's worth remembering, considering the way you describe your audience, that there's one crucial difference between American libertarianism and traditional libertarianism. Traditional libertarianism was opposed to any form of dominance and hierarchy. One of the slogans was, no God, no master, meaning no ecclesiastical dominance, no masters in uh, uh, industry and uh, uh, personal life and families anywhere else. American libertarianism is quite different. It's perfectly happy to support masters. In fact, it uh, extols them. It's in favor of it. It wants no interference with the uh, domination and control of uh, people in the workforce, let's say. That's very counter to uh, traditional libertarianism, either in Europe or, for that matter, in the United States. If you go back to the uh, 19th century, early days of the Industrial Revolution, now there were mass popular movements uh, which had their own journals. You can read what they said and so on. And they were uh, uh, they were just spontaneous. They were opposed to the way in which the industrial system was forcing them to turn into tools of production under someone else's control and destroying their independence as free people, also destroying their culture. Uh, their uh, slogan was, uh, those who work in the mills should own them. Uh, that was taken for granted. In fact, it was 
what they called wage slavery, wage labor. They regarded it as not very different from chattel slavery. Now, that was such a popular position in the United States in the 19th century that it was a slogan of the Republican Party. Uh, wage labor is tolerable because it's temporary, but people should control their own industrial fate. This is as American as apple pie and quite different from what's called libertarianism today. These are important things to bear in mind. So if I can just dig in for one one last question. Uh, It seems to me that the presidency of Barack Obama is quite important historically. One of the cases I made years ago before he got in for even his first term was that you really couldn't have a greater divergence in stated principles or cultural backgrounds than between the younger George Bush and Barack Obama. But uh, a lot of the hopes of the left uh, seems to have really collapsed and and Barack Obama has uh, expanded uh, a lot of the surveillance state, as you say, the war on terror, foreign aggression and so on seems to have really grown. Do you think that this may tempt people on the left to be more skeptical about political solutions? Is there going to be other things bubbling up to to try and find a way to move us towards a freer society without going through the often kabuki theater of electoral politics? Well, electoral politics in the United States has become a kind of a theater. It's nobody's secret that it's mostly bought and mostly responds to the uh, very narrow sectors of wealth and, uh, and private power. But I think the, there shouldn't have been illusions about Obama in the first place. And I don't say this in retrospect. Actually, I was writing about him before the first primaries, 2008 primaries, just uh, looking at his uh, the way he presented himself at his webpage, what he was proud of and so on. I felt that there were... You know, he wasn't George W. Bush, but I didn't feel that there was going to be uh, any really substantial changes. Much of what would happen would um, be negative. I mean, I am surprised by some things. I have been surprised by the severity of his attack on civil liberties. I didn't expect that. I don't understand uh, what's driving it, uh, even politically, what he thinks he's gaining from it. Uh, but that's and it's so often things that aren't very well known, like uh, one of the worst Supreme Court decisions, in my opinion, was what's called Holder uh, v. Humanitarian Law Project, was brought by the Justice Department, by Obama's Justice Department, against a group, Humanitarian Law Project, which was giving legal advice to a group that the government put on its terrorist list terrorist list is something we should be pretty skeptical about. So, for example, uh, Nelson Mandela was on it until a couple of years ago. Uh, but uh, And it's just pure executive authority with no no supervision, no, uh, uh, no recourse, and so on. But the idea that providing legal advice uh, to such a group is the government calls material assistance to terrorism, that's a really severe attack on civil liberties. Uh, and in fact, if you read the colloquy of the judgment, it looks as if uh, if you say advised one of these groups to turn to nonviolent methods, or you just try to research what they're doing, that could be called material assistance to terrorism. Things like that are a major attack on elementary civil liberties. It's not the only case. And why the Obama administration is pressing this so hard is a little hard for me to see. 
But I have to say that most of what's going on has not been a big surprise, unfortunately. And I don't think it should tell people, let's stop being involved in politics, but let's stop having illusions about leaders. That's not the way things are going to change. Well, I, uh, I would certainly agree with that. And uh, I know that we're a little short for time. I, I certainly do appreciate uh, the conversation as I have, as I have for many years, your work, particularly uh, the analysis of foreign policy. Uh, we'll, of course, put your website on the links of this. And I would certainly invite uh, all our libertarian listeners to check out your work. The On Anarchism, I, I found a great uh, read. And uh, th thank you again for all that you're doing. Glad to be with you. Yeah. Take care.